We are looking this morning at John chapter 15. If you have your copy of scripture, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 15. As we are picking up in our sermon series where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are in the upper room. Now, I have to point this out this morning. It's a little bit confusing. If you look at the end of uh, verse 14, Jesus says in the English, rise, let us go from here. And I noted that's sort of a military term. Um, it's, It's a term a general would use in calling his troops to war. And Jesus is going to war against Satan's sin and death itself at the cross, and and you would think he might be telling the disciples, let's leave the upper room, but I think we're still in the upper room. I think he's just calling them to arms and telling them what he's going to do, and so he is now continuing, I believe, what we've been looking at from chapter 13, and we're looking this morning at John 15, 1 through 17. I know that you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Now the Lord Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, In itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is sort of a common misunderstanding when we think about the idea of fruitfulness in Christian living that we often have mistaken notions that fruitfulness means some sort of external success that is endemic to our fallen human nature. It is magnified certainly in the country in which we live where success is everything and showing something successful is everything. But it is even the case in church history. There was a Puritan in the 17th century named Richard Greenham. He was one of the foremost 
theologians um, of his day, and he was such a skilled pastor that the other English Puritans sent them their really hard cases. I'm sure Richard Greenham loved that. So whenever a pastor had a really hard case, he said, I'm just going to pass you off to Richard Greenham. And, um, and uh, Greenham was renowned for his wisdom, and he was beloved by his fellow ministers, but he only had a very, very small congregation in Dry Drayton. And one poet likened his ministry there the congregation was as dry as the town in which the, uh, the church was, dry, Drayton. And at the end of his life, Richard Greenham, he complained that he had ha- not had more fruitfulness in ministry. He had not seen more growth of his church, and that the only fruit he said he had was one cantankerous old man who was a thorn in his side perpetually. Uh, Greenham died, the church called another minister, and the church exploded. And they asked that next minister, what, what happened? What did you do? What, what's the secret to your, your seeming fruitfulness? And he said, oh, it wasn't anything I did. It was the godliness and the godly faithfulness of Richard Greenham. I'm just reaping the fruit of his ministry. Now, we often think mistakenly fruitfulness means this thing looks externally like it's growing. But when the Bible talks about fruitfulness, it talks about things like holiness and love and joy and peace, what Paul will say in uh, Galatians 5.22, what he will call the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that is nowhere more focused and highlighted than it is here in John chapter 15. Jesus has told his disciples, I'm going away. Where I'm going, you cannot come. They've said, why can't we come with you? He's given them the new commandment that they would love one another. He's told them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you my spirit. It's better that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the spirit's not going to come. But if I go, he's going to remain with you forever. And he is comforting their anxious hearts because they are worried, what are we going to do if Jesus is not with us? And the Lord is now continuing this important conversation with his disciples. He is going to be hanging on the cross in just under 18 hours. And these are some of the weightiest things he could tell them. And now here in John 15, he transitions. Remember, Judas has left the room. He is now telling them the most precious heavenly truths for the souls of believers now that Judas is gone. And now he tells them, and notice verse 1, he gives them the seventh I am saying. Remember I told you at the outset of this book and throughout there are seven I am sayings. Remember Jesus is God. He is, he is the great I am who revealed himself to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. Jesus claims deity for himself and he does it under these different figures. He says that he is the door. He is the light of the world. He is the bread that came down from heaven. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He gives all these I am sayings, and now he reserves, and this is so important, he reserves what is almost the most significant one for last. And he says, I am the true vine. I want us to see three things this morning. First, I want us to consider fruitfulness through union with Christ, and then I want us to consider fruitfulness through friendship with Christ, and then I want us to consider fruitfulness through the joy of Christ, fruitfulness through union with Christ, friendship with Christ, 
and the joy of Christ. Well, notice that Jesus turns to the disciples and gives them this last analogy, I am the true vine, and we don't know why he is using the imagery of the vine. There was a vine that was carved around the front of the temple, of the second temple. There was also vine woven into the tapestry of the curtain that divided the people from the most holy place. And that vine was a symbol of Israel. It it is likely that's what Jesus has in mind here. Um, He knows that his disciples understand that God called Israel in the Old Covenant a vine. Listen to this in Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And then here, Isaiah, listen to this in chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared its stones and planted it with choice vines. Likewise, here's Hosea. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. So, so it is in all likelihood Jesus is reflecting on what the Old Testament says about Israel. And, and if you remember Isaiah chapter 5, the song about the vine, the, the beloved song about Israel, he says, I expected this vine that I planted to bring forth good fruit, but instead it brought forth wild grapes. So God was displeased with Israel. They were morally decayed. They were corrupt. They were just like the nations. They were worse than the nations in many respects. They had become a fruitless, withered, dried vine. And Isaiah, it's very interesting, Isaiah actually speaks of another vine. In Isaiah chapter 11 and then in chapter 53, he says that that a shoot would come forth from Jesse. And in Isaiah 53, about the suffering Savior, Jesus Christ, it said he, he, he had no form or comeliness, but that he, he shot up like a shoot out of dry ground. He would be another vine. I, I believe Jesus is here saying, I am the true Israel. Where the old covenant people of God failed, I will be fruitful. I will be the one that brings forth fruit. I will do what Israel failed to do. And, and in saying that, we have to go back further. And he's saying, I am the last Adam. Because remember, Adam was supposed to be a fruitful, righteous image bearer. The first thing God says to Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. You see, they were, they were to have offspring that would be righteous image bearers, and it would be like a vine covering the earth. That's why God put Adam in a garden. From the very beginning, God was intimating that my people will be like a vine that will bear fruit of holiness, that will make my name known, that will show my glory. Adam failed, and then God created the nation of Israel. But Just as Adam had failed, Israel had failed, and now Jesus comes and he says, I am the true vine. I am the long-awaited last Adam. I am the true Israel. I am the one and the only one who in and of myself will bring forth righteousness. You see, Jesus is saying, 
some really magnificent things here. This is the sinless son of God. He's saying, I am going to be fully fruitful. Um, Remember his first miracle where he turned water into wine. Jesus is showing he came to bring fruitfulness, that he is the fruit provider, the source of fruitfulness. Notice what he says at the end of verse 5, and I love this. If you've never memorized this and meditated on it, please do it. Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a little bit. No, he says you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no spiritual life. There is nothing spiritual good that you can do. There is no fruit that you can bear apart from Jesus Christ. He is the source of all life. By the way, a vine really only has one purpose, and that is to give nutrients and life-supplying nutrients to the branches so that they can bear fruit. Um, you, You really don't use vines for fires or any other uses. It has one use, and Jesus is saying, I am the fruitful son, the true Adam, the true Israel, the last Adam, the true and greater Israel, And he is saying, come to terms with the fact that I am the fruitful one. Now, he is doing that to encourage his disciples. Notice, he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Now, this is a difficult passage. It's a severe passage. There there are things Jesus says that are severe. There there are warnings, right? And, And... There was just an example of a branch that didn't abide. That was was Judas. He's been cast out. He is going to be thrown into the fire. Jesus is not, however, let me say this this morning, he is not saying a man, a woman, a boy or girl can have saving faith in Jesus and then fall away. That would be to take an analogy and to misuse it. That is not what he's teaching. He is saying, essentially, that there are always going to be those who profess faith in him. They profess faith. They never really had it, and so they don't remain with him. And then there are others, and they are going to abide. They are going to remain. They are going to persevere. They are going to cling to Christ, and they are going to know, as we sang this morning, that he is holding them fast. They are going to hold to him because he is holding to them. And and he is really not just raising a warning. There is a warning here that if if we don't abide in him, then we're not really united to the vine. Because Jesus is essentially saying here, fruitfulness is through union with me. If you're savingly united to Jesus, he has guaranteed your fruitfulness. That's, there's actually more comfort in this passage that we often miss because we see the warning and the severity, but he is telling the 11, I am going to make you fruitful. I have guaranteed your fruitfulness. It's all in me. It's not ever going to be in you. You'll never get to a point in your Christian life where you don't need me anymore. You don't need union and communion anymore. He is saying at every point, you will need me. And I am guaranteeing I will make you fruitful. And notice this. How, how do we know that? Notice verse 16. What's, what's the guarantee? He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. 
A lot of people hate the doctrine of election. Let me just say this this morning. What is the cash value of the doctrine of election? Jesus has chosen you to guarantee that you'll be fruitful. And if you don't take comfort in that, there's something horribly wrong. I take a whole lot of comfort in that. How do I know I'm going to be fruitful? Why, why will I be fruitful? Because Jesus says, I've chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So he wants us to be fruitful. Now, there's also that pruning analogy. And this is one of those passages I love and my flesh doesn't like. Uh, because he says that in order to make you fruitful, the Father is going to have to prune. Um, I know almost nothing about agriculture, so I'm not even going to pretend. I like the city and restaurants, and I'm glad they take agricultural things to restaurants. Um, but I do know this much. If you don't prune a vine or a rose bush, it will not bring forth in abundance. And if you let a vine go, it will not produce much fruit at all, and it will bring forth flowers, and it will become wild, and it will be good for nothing. And Jesus is saying, I have guaranteed that you will be fruitful, and that's spiritual fruit. That's holiness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. He said, I've appointed that, and you're going to bear fruit, but in order for that to happen, my Father is going to have to prune you. Now, this is um, a beautiful picture because here, and in the last chapter, we see all three members of the Godhead working together for your fruitfulness. Isn't that cool? Jesus atones for your sins. Jesus rescues you on the cross. He sends the Spirit to dwell in you and be in you and bring life in you by uniting you to him. And then the Father's at work and this is the part that's hard but necessary, disciplining, pruning, and, and pruning is painful. I've always said this, the pruning is painful, but the fruit is sweet. And he wants you to bear fruit in abundance. Now, that pruning may come in the form of trials, conflict, any kind of hardship, opposition, persecution, sickness, it can come in many forms, and none of it is enjoyable, but all of it bears fruit. You know, when I think about this, I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. What an amazing woman who is crippled at the age of 17 and yet has more joy than probably every single person in this building, starting with me. And I sometimes think, how? How? It's supernatural. She's united to the vine. She can, she can rejoice in what God has done in her life because she is a massively fruit-bearing branch. Now, fruitfulness comes through union with Christ on our own. Like Old Covenant Israel, we'll never bring forth fruit of wild, we'll only bring forth fruit of wild grapes, and so we need to come to Christ. We need to trust in him. I think abiding in him is really, first and foremost, believing in him. It's taking him at his word, but it's more than that. Notice, notice what he says in verse 4, abide in me, and there are misconceptions about this. There was a movement called Keswick in the 20th century. It was a British movement, and the Keswick movement used to use words like abide, abide in Christ, phrases that are biblical, 
as sort of spiritual mantras. And the problem was when you read different men who would appeal to abiding in Christ, you got the idea, I just need to go home and sit on my couch and lay there and do nothing. Let go and let God. Just take, just take a spiritual time out. And that's what abiding means. But notice what Jesus says. Notice this. He actually says, whoever abides in my word, abides in my word, and then notice verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There is an active nature to this. How do I abide in Christ? I stay in his word. How do I abide in Christ? I seek to live obediently to him. And, and the commandment that he's talking about here, he's picking up from chapter 13. That was the new commandment, especially, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice he says here, those, those beautiful words, he says, this is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You know, the world is watching Zelensky, President Zelensky, right now, and we're all astonished what a human being that he would stand against an undefeatable power so courageously because he loves his people. Now, when we think about what Jesus did on the cross, we should have far more astonishment and we should be far more captivated that by himself he goes to war against Satan, your sin, my sin, and death, and stands against the wrath of God out of his love for us. Isn't that amazing? Out of love. And now he says, you are to love one another as I have loved you. And so abiding in Christ means abiding in his word, and it means abiding in his love. It means seeking to bless other believers, to build them up, to be kind and courteous. You know, I just said to a member out in the narthex, and I'll put it a little different way than I said this out there, but I will go to my grave never understanding how professing believers could want to be so difficult to other professing believers. I just, for the life of me, I don't understand why people want to make other people's lives hard, and yet it happens all the time because we're so selfish and we don't love, we want to be loved, we want to be noticed, we want to be heard, we want our way, we want our opinion, we want to be seen. And Jesus says, abide in my love as I laid down my life for you. So you ought to lay down your life for one another. Well, notice secondly, fruitfulness through friendship with Christ. And this will be shorter, but I want us to notice this in that verse. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, this is astonishing. When we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're thinking rightly, we tend to think about him as the all-powerful, eternal son. We tend to think of him rightly as the king of kings and lord of lords. We tend to think of him as the, 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 the great high priest. We tend to think of him rightly as the great prophet. We think of him in, in many different ways. And then 
all the way down at the bottom of the list, those of us who are so serious about the Bible oftentimes fail to think of him enough as a friend. Jesus here says, I am not only going to be your Lord and Master, I am your friend. Think of that. That's why we love hymns like, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. We can take all of our burdens to him. We can take everything to him. And he says, I have called you friends. I have come down from my place of exaltation to your place. And I've said, I am willing not only to unite myself to you and you to me, I am willing to say, I am your friend. And what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is our friend? Well, he essentially is saying, in any real friendship, one party shares secrets with another. They entrust their inmost personal um, knowledge to one another. And Jesus says that. Notice he says, I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. So that if you have received his word, if you are clinging to his word, if you are trusting in him, if you are seeking to keep his commandments, he says, you are my friends because I have made these things known to you. Isn't that marvelous? What an encouragement. What an encouragement to prayer. Think about this. The next time you go to pray, that you thank the Lord Jesus that he's your friend, that he has, he has befriended you. You know, it's shocking. I heard um, one theologian say many years ago, and I've looked for this sermon over the years, but he pastored a very large congregation here in South Carolina, and he said, um, I think it was on this passage, he said, you know, it's odd that I even have to tell you that you all should be seeking to be friendly. And yet Christians even have to be told they have to be friendly because we're not by nature. And yet Jesus says, I am your friend, and I'm going to teach you what true friendship is, and I'm going to bind you in that close union and communion with me that you can think of me that way. You know, here's a comfort. Thomas Watson, reflecting on those times when we fear, feel deserted by God, maybe because of our sin or because of the circumstances of life, the pruning, the, the painful trials, uh, the, the, the man or woman of God can feel de deserted. And Watson says, you fear you are not God's child because you are deserted. He said, even that desertion evidences you to be a child of God. How can you complain that God has estranged himself from you if you had not sometime received smiles and tokens of love from him? Jesus is giving you a smile and a token of love when he says, I have called you my friend. I have loved you. I've laid down my life for you. Now abide in my love. Fruitfulness comes through the friendship of Christ. And then third, finally, Fruitfulness through the joy of Christ. Um, notice that as we saw last week, Jesus talked about my peace I give to you. Now he talks about my love. He talks about abiding, I'm sorry, in my joy and in my love. But notice he says to abide in his joy. And, and he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, joy is itself part of the fruit, and yet it's the joy of the Lord and it's the joy of Christ that bears the fruit in us. 
How can we go through the painful seasons of pruning and yet bear fruit because he gives us his joy? What is the joy of Christ? Remember that the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 verse 1 and 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What was the joy? Of bringing you to be with him where he is, of bringing you to glory. And what does it mean for us to have fullness of joy is to know that we are going to be together in glory with him no matter what happens here. And that allows us to be fruitful. How is Johnny Erickson taught us so fruitful? It's flowing from the joy that Christ has given her. Um, I don't pray for joy enough. I'm going to go out on an educated guess and just say you probably don't either. We should be praying for joy. Nehemiah says it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, Sinclair Ferguson pointed out that the motto of the Hitler movement, and you can look this up, um, was joy through strength. I just heard a conservative news channel talking about peace through strength today. Um, we need peace through strength. Hitler said we need joy through strength. Jesus reverses it because that's really anti-Christian. And he says it is strength through joy, Ferguson says. It is strength through joy, fruitfulness from joy. I want to just highlight this morning as we close here that the Lord has guaranteed your fruitfulness if you're united to Christ. He has chosen you in order to make you fruitful. Uh, the Father is going to prune us so that we will bear more fruit. Um, the Lord Jesus also tells us that that fruitfulness is going to come from our knowledge of his friendship and communion, and that it's going to flow from the joy that he gives us. I hope as you reflect on these things, you'll ask yourself the question, am I longing for more joy in my life? Am I praying for that? Am I acknowledging that Christ is the only source of that? Am I abiding in his word? Am I abiding in his love? Am I seeking to love those who are also united to him the way that he has loved us? Am, and am I living out the Christian life, seeking fruitfulness through the joy that Jesus gives us? I hope that you all will ask those questions and will go to him. Jesus says this, without me, you can do nothing. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray this morning that you would make us fruitful branches.